What's up everyone, welcome to episode 32 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by noise.co.uk. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr Cynical himself, as always, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I am fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm as good as can be in the current uh, conditions, man. Like, today I had to look quickly sprint to the shop to pick something up uh, for my mm. parents. And I was like, man, should I be doing this? <laughs> like, literally, yeah. I, 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 I quickly ran there, ran back. But it's got to the point now where even those minimal interactions, you're like, oh, man, was this a good idea? Should I have done this? Am I a bad person for doing this? Crazy, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, but it's 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 a good thing to feel that way. I know it sounds really strange, but yeah. um, the the guilt that is rightly attached because we've we've got we've got to play it safe for the for the safety of everybody in our society, and that's just the way that it has to be. And and obviously, minute runs to the shops uh, in the large scale of things, perfectly okay. Uh, I did the same this morning, um, but long in the long term that's the sort of vibe that we have to really approach these sort of things really is it necessary yeah. should i be doing this yeah. moving forward that's the only approach we have to take like mate, my, my hands are red raw because I, I like at work nearly every 25 minutes i've been washing them um yeah so my hands are like raw like, obviously i used to wash my hands anyway but now it's like it's really weird it's man. yeah it's heightened like i, I saw you share that um a video on Twitter of Scrubs, that episode where at the end, yes. uh, Cabbage accidentally infects um, Mrs. Wilkes, who's like a really nice patient. She ends up dying. Yeah, it's because heartbreaking. Of it. it's, it, yeah, it's really upsetting. But like, I keep thinking of that because I know that like Scrubs is like a, a sitcom TV show that for the large part takes the piss, but like that like two minute segment, it's not a million miles outside the realms of possibility, is it? Well, yeah, actually, Scrubs is always applauded as one of the most medically accurate yeah of of all, of all the the hospital based shows whereas you get like guys and that's being house and it's like oh we cured the cancer in your stomach 15 yeah. minutes yeah do you know do you know what i mean like house just turns up and says oh she's got piles everything's fine yeah um whereas scrubs is like super realistic um so but the the the, the message as you, as you absolutely say is is is, is fair and right You've just got to be really, really, really careful. I ordered um, I ordered a takeaway on Saturday, right? And the guy delivered it, but, like, he placed it in front of my house in the box that it... You know those, like, heated boxes? Yeah, yeah. In the box that it came in and then backed away like he was offering a sacrifice <laughs> to a vengeful god. Yeah. And I, like, had to, like, walk out my house, open the box. Really weird. Like, it was really awkward. And then just sort of lift it out and then back away. And then he waited me from getting into my house and then took the heating box and sort of scurried back into his car like we like I'd bought drugs off him or something like that. It was really odd. But like I was at the same time none of us thought it was weird. It was it was an awkward surrounding, but it was like, yeah, okay, this is this is kinda of how things have to be for a while. Same thing happened, happened to me and Katie when we when we got take out this week. Absolutely. Uh, people are like visiting parents through windows and stuff. There's that viral image have you seen it where the granddad's seen his son for the first grandson yeah, for the first yeah. time. Yeah. through the window um which is obviously heartbreaking but in the grand scheme of things these um these are the sacrifices that we have to make I, I just i just hope that all of us follow it all of the time because boris keeps saying look man if you stop listening to me i'm gonna have to make you yeah. stay in yeah and that's not good because then we're gonna have to you know have the military and the police and curfews and it's like 
come on, man. We we should be able to be trusted, but we, you know, some elements of our society just can't. We are going to get to that in a short moment, but first, this is Rock and Metal Podcast, brought to you every two weeks by the beautiful folk at Noise.co.uk. We're available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. If you can, like the video, subscribe to us, and leave us a five-star rating if you're on Apple Music. That would be absolutely wicked. Really appreciate that. Helps us more than you could possibly know. Uh, on the last episode, I spoke about somehow catching Stereophonics live, and we did an album review on Five Finger Death Punch's F8, or Fate. We didn't actually determine whether it would be where the album was going to be pronounced. The rest of it's as indecipherable as the title. (laughs) The title's the best part of the album. On Noise at Credit UK at the moment, there's loads of live reviews on the likes of like Employed to Serve, Alcest, and Baby Metal. Although I'm I'm not assuming. I know full well our live reviews will be going down the pan just shortly. And then album reviews on the new Orchards record, Love Court, and the District's new album, uh, You Know I'm Not Going Anywhere. On this week's Noise podcast, we are talking about me and Sam catching Turnstile in Birmingham. Sam is going to talk about the 19th greatest metal album of all time. Actually, not just Sam. I forgot to mention that me and Sam will be discussing that album in full. Can't wait for that one. And then album reviews this week come from August Burns' red new album, Guardians, and the new Code Orange album, Underneath. Anyone that either follows me on Twitter or has me as a friend on Facebook is already pretty much well aware of what I think about that album, because I've literally not shut up about it since I first reviewed it. Uh, But this will be very interesting to hear what Sam's thinking as well. In terms of news this week, there really isn't much to tell you, apart from literally every band that had up-and-coming tours somewhere in the world has cancelled them because of COVID-19, a.k.a. coronavirus. Um, Sam, this is, uh, this is a worrying time for the music industry. Am I correct? Yeah, it is a worrying time. Um, but hopefully it's a, a, short-term, a short-term dip for a long-term sort of gain. Um, yeah. Because I imagine in sort of three to six months' time when festivals and big gigs start returning, the onrush of attendance and people just happy to come outside and do things again might might rebalance the uh, the situation but yeah in the short term i feel sorry for a lot of large amounts of people working in the industry at the moment and, and and especially bands who are who've made financial sacrifices to go on tours that are now cancelled well yeah that's a, a great point because me and you've got several gigs lined up this year as we always do but you know lamb of god has already been uh, postponed. We assume that at some point not festival and leads. Now, for, for those three, Lamb of God aren't going to be absolutely financially devastated by that. N- not fest certainly won't, and neither will leads. But it's the smaller tours where it's like devastating. For example, we were going to see after the burial and make them suffer uh, last week. Actually, it would it would have been last week. Now. That is the kind of thing that would be potentially devastating for those bands because those bands don't bank millions of dollars. Do you know what I mean? So yes. basically, the message here would be: if you're if you really like a band, uh, now would be the absolutely perfect opportune time to, if you can afford it, um, spend your money on that band. I've bought. A heck of a lot. I, mean, I always buy merch from bands anyway, and I've started collecting vinyls. But in the last week or so, I've just been ordering as much merch and vinyls from bands that have recently had uh, cancelled tours that I can possibly get my hands on. And there's a promotion called Surprise You're Dead, who 
basically the two guys that run that, their livelihood is that promotion. And, Appropriately named in the circumstances yeah, as well. Yeah, um, and they have basically put on over 700 shows over the years, most of which, Sam, um, me and you have been at. You know, Sleep Token, Sleep Token in January, um, when we saw after the burial, uh, Turnstile, which we're going to talk about today, put on by Surprise Dead. Basically, the Birmingham area, metal shows are put on by Surprise You're Dead, and they're like, um, well, all these tours are cancelled, so we're not getting money. This is wank. We're sorry, we've had to put up a crowdfunder. If you can spare anything, um, can you help us out? So, just to reiterate, this sucks massively, not just for the music industry, but for the world in general. And now would be the absolute opportune time, if you can spare anything, to help support the things that you love, man. Um, I sincerely, sincerely hope that this is over as soon as possible. And also, I don't know whether you've seen this, Sam, there has been like a plea for Spotify to up the revenue that they give mm. artists per stream. Because at the moment, it's incredibly low. And I do love Spotify. And I've used Spotify for several years. And I've been a premium member for several years. And I think that people have started to become a bit disillusioned with streaming. In the sense of like, they almost feel guilty for streaming now. They're like, man, 0.003 pence per listen. Man, this sucks. If Spotify could just... They're a multi-multi-million dollar profit business now. It would be great Brilliant. if they if they'd be great if they could just come onto the front line and be like, Oh, by the way, we're doubling the amount of revenue we give artists per stream now. Which still wouldn't be great because then it'd be like naught point naught naught six P but still it would it would be double and it would be uh, a sign of solidarity. So I hope they follow through with that, but no news pretty much. Tours are getting cancelled left, right and centre. I'm just waiting on an email any day now to say that the Ghost Inside's cancelled and that Knotfest's cancelled and Slam Dunk's cancelled and that Leeds Fest is cancelled and it sucks, but great time to come together and I hope this is over as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. I think it's a shame that um, it takes a pandemic to persuade people and businesses and corporations and companies to do the right thing and look after look after people, but at least it's happening as a response. So Sam, Turnstile, Birmingham, um, we caught we caught them at the mill, what, 10 days ago? Now, it feels like uh, 10 years ago, doesn't it? Yes. It feels like a long time ago, and funnily enough, just off, off the back of what we were mentioning, I remember when we were there, we were like, is it a good idea that we're, that we're doing this tonight? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I didn't feel okay about it, to be honest. Like, <laughs> going up there, I was like, this could be... This could be the last gig I'm going to for a while, which, as it turns out, it definitely, definitely is. Absolutely. Um, now, I've always, I've been a big proponent for Turnstile for quite a while. I threw that the the latest album on you when we were talking about picking two albums that we wanted to review on that episode a few weeks ago. Um, Time and Space. So yes. you, you you were well into it. You were like, oh, actually, this is a really great record. And then you were like, oh, I was like, oh, why don't you just come then and see them? So I I knew I would be fully in. We were actually right at the barrier, which was sick. Uh, what did you think? I thought they were terrific. I thought they were terrific. I thought um, I thought the vibe was great. Yeah. I thought it was a, I thought it was a perfect mesh of like had the energy of a punk crowd. Um, the mosh bits of a metal crowd and the sort of there was like a swelling mass of everyone sort of being there at the same time there was a there was a real cohesion there which i really enjoyed i thought they were great there was a real energy and um, there's a real good um good running order every band seemed to have a have a decent following and, and and people were really really enjoying it um 
but the band themselves were, were, were fantastic. They were exactly what you want for a, a, a modern punk slash rock slash alternative band in terms of the energy, the performance, the relationship between them, um, the response from the crowd. It, it ticks it ticks all of the all of the gig boxes. I was very impressed. It's difficult to come across a band that is a rock slash hardcore slash punk band that you can actually dance to, yeah. But, like, yeah. the way they build... At least not like a normal person. Well, yeah. <laughs> the way they build and structure their songs gives off every vibe you could want from alternative music. And B. Rady, their guitarist, he, back me up here, man, isn't he just brilliant? He is fantastic. He has a, um, a nice penchant of writing riffs that you can sing. Um, which is lost uh, sometimes in punk and hardcore. And I think that's one of the the great gathering principles of great rock and metal music is riffs that you can sing along to and enjoy and hum to your friends and, and has an easy-to-follow groove. I mean, like, too often I think sometimes um, you see metal bands that are trying to outpace each other or outcomplicate each other and you end up writing songs that, just confuse a band, a confuse an audience for nine and a half minutes who don't really know where to put themselves. There is absolutely no confusion whatsoever with how to respond to Turnstile's music. Um, and it just involves from the neck to the top of your head and some various parts of your shoulders. And it is just so groove laden and so dancey. And it's just, it's just classic great riffing and it reminds me of a few great bands that have done it i was talking to you guys about it afterwards and it, it had like misfits beastie boys asteroid boys sort of yeah hip-hop influenced dance rap um sort of riffs and i don't mean to say that someone was rapping over it but you hear those bands play riffs and it's very sort of simple grooves down tuned played in a heavy way it was new metal-esque in the sense that it was groovy um i was i was well in it's the perfect music to play for a gig it really, really is. Um, I was, I was very impressed. It was like a really quick slap to the face. Yeah, they come on, play thirteen songs that are like two minutes twenty seconds each, and they're fucked off. It's like it was like an early finish gig, and sometimes they're the best, right? Like the bands that like just come on, no fucking about thirty six minutes. Here's like thirteen of our songs, which is almost like their entire fucking discography. The songs are just so like so short and punchy and slappy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, I, 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 when I caught them at 2000 Trees, I knew, I was like, Sam would absolutely love seeing these. Because obviously I'd listened to the album before before we went there, and I was already well in. But seeing them live, I was like, this is sick, man. And I I loved the, the atmosphere that was there, because it was one of the most fun atmospheres I've been in at a gig. Do you know what I mean? In the sense of like, yeah, it, was, it, was like it was like a hard rock party gig, but within the confines of hardcore punk. Yeah, I agree. It was like we were on like a music video yeah. where like there's there's no like real element of danger and everyone's just sort of enjoying themselves. Um, there was like people legitimately dancing on the um, on the front barrier, which is usually a space where you get your head kicked in. Yeah. Like I I was I was I was cautious when we were at the barrier and I was like in my head I was like we're not going to be here very long because after ten minutes it's going to be either be unbearable or someone's going to move us off or whatever it might be. But it was perfectly easy to just sort of lean forward and nod your head and just enjoy yourself. And um, for that, I was incredibly surprised and incredibly grateful, to be honest. I thought, like you said, it was a, it was a, it was a really good um, vibe. It felt like I was on a night out where a band were playing. It was it was really enjoyable. Do you think they could go on to be a big deal? 
Uh, no, and I don't want them to either, and I don't mean that in a bitterness sort of way. I think they're perfectly suited to the vibe and the venue that they are, and they remind me of, like, the ultimate hardcore, like, pub band or, like, um, like a house band. I think they're perfectly suited to that. I don't think bands like that either have the inclination or the desire to really break it out, um, but I don't think their music lends itself well to bigger arenas either it would lose the intensity it would lose the um the closeness and the intensity of what's going on there and i think that adds to the music that they're playing i think punk should always be played in punk in in, in small venues always even even the sex pistols don't play any place bigger than brixton and that's how yeah. it should be yeah that does make sense we're going to move on swiftly because the Three topics that we've got to talk about here I know are all going to be lengthy ones. So, uh, we're going to move on to the greatest metal album of all time list. We have reached the top 20 now, and this will be number 19. Just to reiterate for people who might not have been listening, or this could be their first ever episode to listen to, Sam's been going from his list that he's curated personally, from 100 up to 20 of the best metal albums of all time. He's been reading off five five albums an episode, or something around that mark, and just telling us quickly why each album has been such a landmark in metal. But when we got to the top 20, we decided that instead of Sam just reading them off, we would do a segment per episode, per album. So... We're on number 19 now, and for the next nine episodes, we will do, we'll dedicate a specific segment to said album that's in that list, and then for the top 10, we will do full episodes dedicated to said albums. So we're on number 19 now, Sam, the 19th greatest metal album of all time. Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Can I preface this by saying that of course I knew Welcome to the Jungle Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine but I had never listened to this album in full until you told me it was going to be album number 19 because my dad wasn't a fan of Guns N' Roses so there was no break in point for me to get into cool. the band. So, the, so, the, so this was really really interesting fascinating for me although of course I will let you take the lead on this one um, first things first, um, we've never been doing this segment for a year, That's um, awesome, which, which, which highlights sort of the consistency that we've been doing it and how, how long this process has taken to get here, which I think is quite cool. Uh, first things first, um, people think of Guns N' Roses, they think of Sweet Child of Mine, they think of Welcome to the Jungle, they think of, uh, um, November Rain, they think of the Paradise City, right? All the massive, massive hit singles and the, the stadium shows and things like that. And that that's absolutely fine, but it, it all came it all came from this, and and this is their first album. This is one of the greatest rock albums of all time. Yeah. This is this isn't a metal list. This is a this this not just a metal list. Obviously, there's lots of rock albums that that are great rock albums that wouldn't appear in this list, but there's lots of reasons why this album in particular um, appears in this list, and we'll get to those momentarily. Um, this is the greatest rock debut of all time and arguably the greatest debut album of all time in terms of sales, influence, longevity, cultural impact. It ticks every single box and beyond for a start. Um, just looking at the raw numbers, it was released in July, um, June the 21st, 1987. And by the, the following year, it had been in the number one top 200, number one top 200 for four weeks. Um, it sold 30 million albums worldwide, 18 million in America alone, and kicked off a cultural change 
in rock and roll music, and this is before we even get into the album, kicked off a cultural change in rock and roll music that you where you can draw a line from Guns N' Roses to Slipknot. And that alone is deserving here. So in terms of its influence, its social impact, its cultural impact, the longevity that Guns N' Roses are, have become more than just a band. They've become like a symbol of yeah. rock and roll and a metaphor for the decadence of rock and roll and all the cliches of rock and roll. Um, and it's it's very easy if you point in the same way that you can look at metal as whatever the fuck it was before Black Sabbath and then everything after it's Black Sabbath. You can look at rock and roll as the pre-Guns and Roses existence and the post-Guns and Roses existence because it literally did change the world. Um, from the moment Appetite for Destruction came out, in that year, the biggest rock bands on the world in the world were White Snake, Bon Jovi, um, Poison, and Motley Crue. Um, by the time that Guns N' Roses' second album came out in 1991, Usual Illusion, the biggest rock out bands in the world were Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Guns N' Roses. Yeah. So between 1987 and 1991, there was a humongous change where we where we moved away from. The, the pretty boy image, you know, the Bon Jovi's, the makeup, the the poison, the wearing girls' clothes, and yeah, all I was going to mention that. this when when when, well, when the first came around, the hair metal scene and the the extravagant sexual styles was yeah. was massive and all the rage, and Guns N' Roses completely changed that. Absolutely obliterated it within six months of it happening. Actually, by 1988, even Poison, who were one of the biggest bands for the female-led image, um, changed their changed their scene to bandanas all of a sudden bands started playing gibson les pauls in videos just like slash did top hats and bandanas and sunglasses started becoming things and it's no coincidence the 1988's motley Crue album dr feelgood is by far their heaviest album it was a direct response to guns and roses um what guns and roses did for the next couple of years as well is pretty much demolish that image to the point where it's so uncool to be into sort of this pop metal hair blessed hair buffed long hair eyelash sort of image that had preceded it the bands that were not doing that bands that were, were rebellious and were following their own thing that didn't dress up like that were becoming popular not just in underground schools and colleges but in the mainstream so from 1987 through to 1990 bands like pearl jam and Soundgarden and nirvana were becoming more popular with the mainstream because of the door that guns and roses opened in 1997 by which point in 1991 smells like teen spirit comes out the grunge period kicks off for the next five years and that's what we defined by rebellion um it's the second wave of punk music and that wouldn't have happened without guns and roses um and then obviously from that point without nirvana happening and the grunge music happen happening we wouldn't have got the black album which is seen as a direct response by Metallica to some of these changes. And then from there, you can go from grunge to new metal in the mid to late 90s. And then everything that happened afterwards, where rock music shifted from looking like a girl to being like a rebel and the, the return to that ideology and image and that symbolism is all condensed to Guns N' Roses and Welcome to the Jungle and Axl Rose being a fucking maniac for like three and a half years. And Slash coined it as well. People forget this. They're that they're like old, bloated, forty to fifty-year-old um, musicians, and there's a whole generation now that grew up as them as older members. But Guns N' Roses were legitimately the the most intimidating band on the planet for parents, for older people, for members of the government, for members of the public service, for parents of teenagers. They were they were legitimately considered a danger 
um, to your children's ears with their, their, their sexualized lyrics and all this sort of stuff. And then on top of that, the media that followed them around and covered them from rock media to mainstream media. And on top of that, all the drugs and all the alcoholism and all the stories that came out around the band propelled this band to a point where they even transcended their own music. And, that, and I haven't even mentioned a note of the album itself yet. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you actually turn on all the album, you have to know all that going in, how massive it was. That within it, it debuted at 180 seconds on the Billboard chart, and within a year it was it was number one. Um, it was just a massive, massive, massive upswing, and then from there it just kicked off the Guns N' Roses obsession that took hold of the world pretty much until they disbanded in 93 and 94. It was it's just an astonishing debut album that literally changed the face of music. And on top of that, the songs are fucking great. Oh, yeah, it was, absolutely. It, it, it was, it, so, like, you listen to it, and, I, and I'm saying all this, and I say, well, you have to listen to it thinking of the time. No, 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 these songs are timeless. Yeah. Well, Welcome to the Jungle is still one of the greatest opening tracks on any album ever. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Mr. Brownstone and Night Train. I absolutely love Night Train. Did you listen to the end solo on Night Train, Chris? Yeah. Where it fades out? Yeah. Every time I listen to that, I'm like, I need to find a version where it doesn't fade out. I need to hear the rest of that solo. It's one of the great unanswered questions in rock music because it is just beautiful. Um, and then on top of that, you've got Sweet Child of Mine and Paradise City. Then on top of that, you've got songs like Think About You and Rocket Queen that are like the seventh and eighth best song on this album that are still terrific. And there are so many, so many brilliant stories about this album. Like the fact that a lot of it was written on accident. Uh, Welcome to the, Welcome to the Jungle was written by um, Slash accident leaving his reverb pedal on just while he was tuning his guitar, and Axel was like, "Play that again, and we'll build it round." Sweet Child of Mine was a was a riff that Slash used to play to warm his fingers up before the start of a gig. The one time that Axel Rose turned up early for practice, he actually heard it because it was something that Slash had played at the start. Whereas usually he'd turn up halfway through, he'd never have heard it. Um, the the famous breakdown in Sweet Child of Mine, where it's like, "Where do we go now?" They're all sitting on the bus writing that song, literally singing Where Do We Go Now? Because they haven't got any fucking lyrics. And that's how they wrote that song. And it all builds back into the chorus. The whole thing is just an eclectic mix of mistakes and drug addict stories. And the fact that they went on tour from um, from California all the way down to Seattle and booked 10 shows, went on a bus... And they were so dysfunctional and late and fucked their equipment up so much they could only make the final show of the tour. By which point, every other member of the band had either left, couldn't make it, had gone home, backed out, and they were left with the Stephen Adler, Axel Rose, Izzy Stradlin, and Slash, and Duff McKagan, and that became the core process. And then from there, obviously, the turned into the band that they are now. And this is an album where the quality is 10 out of 10. The historical context is 10 out of 10. The social impact is 10 out of 10. You look at any any band now, right any rock band now and they, they they you can pick things apart like the clothes the style even the mannerisms of the vocalist um the fucking guitars that are being played and you're like oh yeah i saw that in 1987 and it, it, it's they're so incredibly influential and so socially relevant and so universal that you can play guns and roses to pretty much any metal fan down to any mother who loved Sweet Child of Mine when it came on the radio when she was like 16 and still hums along the chorus. There is no other heavy rock band that has had that sort of cultural impact over this longer period of time. And the fact is when they read the night, was sort of like when they reformed three years ago and did the whole Not In This Lifetime tour, 
they were able to just play like 15 stadium shows off the bat without anybody thinking anything of it and fans rushed to see them. The fact that the previous five years that when Axel Rose was bringing out Goods of Rose on his own, he was turning up an hour and a half late and stuff like that, people still paid. People like myself still paid 110 quid a ticket or something just to see them, to have the chance of bringing these two back together. And that's how impactful they were. Metal was not directly influenced by Guns N' Roses, but without this album, Metal would be a completely different and probably much more, much less successful thing than it was prior to this album coming out. It was a death knell for all the shit and the over-bloatation and the over-salutation, saturation of bad rock music that had started to um, infect late 80s cultural zeitgeist and instead opened the door to an entire new generation of music that is still permeating through our culture today if if not for this album god knows what metal looks like god knows what rock and roll looks like and i for one am incredibly glad that it exists an example of <clears throat> how much i like this album of actually i'd say probably love is that I've heard, I, I listened to it a few times, I was like, right, I want to find out the history and the stories behind this album. Like, I, I've done my own, like, research on the record. Cause I, I, I love I, that. Because I, I, I'm sewing. Because I, I don't want to talk about Welcome to Jungle Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine, really, because, of course, I, know, I knew those three songs. Those three songs are like, it's almost like you were born imprinted with those songs imprinted into your memory. Because yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell you the first time I ever heard either of those three songs. It's almost like I've always known them. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. They're, they're bigger. Agree. They're, they're bigger than rock. They're just they're like the epicenter of music. It's just, I just can't imagine anyone not knowing that mm-hmm. that Sweet Child of Mine is playing when that opening riff starts. So. Don't want to really talk about those three songs. Outside of mentioning that those three songs combined have got 1.5 billion streams on Spotify alone. That's not counting YouTube views or Apple Music listens or purchases from records. 1.5 billion streams on those three songs combined. That is crazy. It's astonishing. That if Guns N' Roses just brought out those three songs, they might still be on this list. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if this was an EP, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but... I, I, I was looking. I was doing my research on the record, and much to what you were saying, uh, like I, I found out a lot of those stories. But other really weird things, like um, on Rocket Queen, there's like 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 a, a woman moaning, and it's, yes. uh, supposedly that's actually Izzy Stradlin's missus. <laughs> like, um, was, yeah. was was it Izzy Stradlin that was? Um, it wasn't Izzy Stradlin that was striking it. Was it was actual Rose? Oh right, okay. It was, it was actually. But it it, it might have been Izzy Stradlin's missus though. It, 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 it's, Someone was actually getting banged. Like the the guy that mixed the record, I saw an interview with him. He was like, I, I put in like a fake of it, like from some porn. And Axel was like, No, I don't want it like that. I want it to be like a real woman, Mauni. Um, and so he was like, So I mic'd up the room and I locked the door and we <laughs> and like lit some candles, yeah, lit some candles, and yeah, that thing happened. And just this really, really like bizarre strange a collection of stories ends up making this record that will live in infamy forever but i actually think that from i've listened to this album in full now about four times and i think that actually the first 30 seconds of out to get me you could sum up the album within that and i mean that as a compliment in the sense of the first 30 seconds of that song you've got izzy straddling's like really thick heavy rhythm guitar and yeah. then slashes underneath with that beautiful, like, clean lead riff. Mm-hmm. So you've got 
Adler's got this like bro, proper like the cowbell as well in it. Proper, yeah, proper, like, the cowbell. Pounding snare, and then Axel comes in over the top with his proper like spellbinding, like eye gazing voice. And the first thirty seconds of that song uh, is probably even with Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, and Sweet Child of Mine considering it's probably my favourite thirty seconds on the album. I just think it's just a really brilliant small capture of just excellent, excellent uh, above critique rock music mm-hmm. that that it is absolutely like you said timeless. Um, speaking of Axel, just for a moment, he's got an absolutely unbelievable range on his voice, which which you probably already would have known going in for the songs that are really poppy from Guns N' Roses, but when you really de- dive into the album, like on Mr. Brownstone and My Michelle, you get like a real idea of how much control he's got over his voice. And yeah. from the research that I've done again, he was in choirs when he was younger. That's um, right. Yeah. Which would Singing prob- Elton John songs. Yeah. Which would probably, um, I'm assuming that would lend hand in hand to his ability to have such a, a range of pitch. And just mentioning Elton John, um, did you ever see? I'm, you, I'm assuming you saw the Freddie Mercury tribute where have, yeah. um, he's doing Bohemian Rhapsody with Elton John. Like, how class is that? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. But yeah, back to this album. Uh, this is like one of those really like crazily brilliant capturing time albums, and I don't think many albums sum up legendary status quite like this one. And me going in, it's 2020. This album came out 33 years ago. This sounds like it came out two weeks ago. You could have convinced me. If 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 somehow <laughs> I'd never heard of Guns N' Roses and you were like, a new album's come out two weeks ago, Chris, do you like it? I, I, reckon, I reckon I could b- be convinced it was two weeks ago. that The album is just timeless. And though things have moved on, obviously dramatically in 33 years, this this is just such a timestamp in music. And yes. Fascinatingly, it didn't actually top the billboard until a year after it came out, which supposedly was down to when, when the album originally released, bands like Def Leppard and Bon Jovi were still the epicentre of yeah. mainstream rock music. And then people actually started catching on to the likes of Welcome to the Jungle, which I, I will, I've got to say, it still does bother me intensely that they don't start their live shows with Welcome to the Jungle. Um, and it, and <laughs> yeah, Sam, Sam, It's So Easy is a great song. It really is. But mm. how, how could they do this to me? Welcome to the Jungle is the first song on the album. I'd understand if It's So Easy was the first song, but not only is Welcome to the Jungle like this absolute, I just can't think of a better way to start any live show than playing that song. It's also the first song on the album. How could they do this? Is know, there a reason that I'm missing? No, I've just they've always they always open with it's so easy before. I think oh. they wrote it was one of the first songs they ever wrote. Oh god! So I think there's like a um a nostalgia there, and it's all it's one they opened with when they they had their famous Ritz shows in LA in '87 and '88 where they were like top of their game. Um, so I think it's always been a hark back to that. But I agree, I agree, I. It was fifth when I saw it. How? Um, <laughs> it was. It was still terrific though, because I could still I could still see you know sort of Axel standing by, Slash puts his arm round and then they just start. It's it is fantastic. There's the sun coming down and things like that. You could play it anywhere. It could be the first encore song. It could that, be. That'd be a spot. 
Yeah. Um, but 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 yeah, I I I agree with your overall overall assertion. Um, these songs, the massive songs, transcend. Um, but this Axl Rose performance is yeah the greatest vocal performance in rock history, without a shadow of a doubt. I think. And Slash's guitar performance huh. is maybe the greatest rock guitar performance of all time. And you've considered he played a lot of this on fucking heroin. Uh, out of his eyeballs, like I, how he wrote some of these songs and played the way that he did, is just astonishing. There isn't a guitarist. That, I, I say this a lot about bands, but there isn't a guitar. You know a Slash solo. Absolutely. A layman can pick out a Slash solo the way that he bends certain notes, the way that he glides over certain scales, and it's just um, to, to borrow a word that you use, absolutely spellbinding. I, I, I've listened to this album so much now, um, front and back. The, my favourites are like the little moments, like um, moments in like Think About You or like the end of Night Train or or Rocket Creel and things like that. But every time, every time you hear that solo in Sweet Child of Mine, I get goosebumps. I have actually got a, in my notes that these songs are eternal and feature the classic Sam line guitar lines you can sing along to. Absolutely, and like they 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 are littered throughout this album. There's probably yeah. a guitar line you can sing along to on every single song. Yeah, I, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree. I would wholeheartedly agree. This, this whole, and it's beautifully mixed as well. Yeah. Um, it it, man, it maintains the rawness. It doesn't sound polished, uh, but everything is clear. And it just it. This album has done so much um, for the culture of rock and metal, and you can. I know that you've listened to the album in full and you've already heard the main songs, but you can now go back and hear other bands and you can start drawing connections. Yeah. And you you can start picking out little things. Oh, that little note, that little that little bend there, that little riff, that little that that leather jacket, that that set of sunglasses, that bad down. It's all all tied in um to how culturally impactful Guns N' Roses were. And this is the nineteenth greatest metal album, despite yeah. not being despite not being a metal album. Yeah. Because of the influence it had on metal. Um if you grew up learning how to play guitar in the early nineties, you were listening to Guns N' Roses and that was probably a gateway to Pantera and Metallica and all of these other bands and Iron Maiden. But it starts most likely do you imagine how many people decided to play guitar after watching like Sweet Child of Mine or Welcome to the Jungle oh, M T V in the late eighties? Oh man, who knows? Do you know what I mean? Millions and millions and millions of people who would not have picked up that instrument are completely ch- irrecoverably changed after seeing that, um, seeing those music videos and that band and convincing them to get into rock music and get into that culture and, and finding somewhere for themselves and, and all that sort of stuff. And the thing is, as well, the, the thing that makes this album so special is that the band never replicated this. There's no Appetite for Destruction 2. There's no there's no album that even comes close to this from Guns N' Roses' repertoire or, Ed, I, I would argue, any other rock album since. Now, I think metal is different. It's a different genre. But this is the last, I think, the last Mount Rushmore all-time great rock album ever. I, 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 think, I think you can point to a few really, 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 really great albums. But in terms of, like, the... 
absolutely changed the face of music forever sort of rock albums this is the last one and you put it alongside sabbath and led zeppelin and all and, and all of the absolutely and queen and all absolutely mammoth rock bands this is the last entry into that hall of fame i think and guns and roses never came anywhere near it interestingly enough did you know that um november rain and you could be mine were both taken off this album i did not which were also the two best songs on uh, two of the best songs on Usual Illusion. And Civil War was written in 1987. Um, so this album, really, this album period in 1987, the band wrote 15 of their 17 best songs <laughs> in like in like an 18-month period. This album could have also had You Could Be Mine and November Rain on. Axl Rose <laughs> just chose, chose not to put it on because they didn't have enough money to make it sound how Axl Rose had it in his head. So we held on to it until they had, they were the biggest band in the world. And then he was like, right, we're going to do it with an orchestra and a grand piano. And the video is going to be 15 minutes long and there's going to be a church. And like, he could do everything he wanted to do. Otherwise, they'd have brought this, like a, brought a, probably a lesser version. But it just highlights that this is, I mean, we're talking like Lionel Messi in 2012 level of hot streak. This is. This band from like 1987 through to mid part of 1988, this is like all time territory of 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 music creation and, and just and complete hedonism. If you ever want to read an interesting book, um, read Mick Wall's book about Guns N' Roses or Slash's own autobiography. And the chapters between 1986 and 1988, you just have to stop and think, surely this didn't happen. Surely not. <laughs> Like when they're on tour in London, there's a girl randomly following them around from bar to bar and then Slash wakes up at four o'clock in the morning and she's sucking his dick while he's asleep. So he just pretends to be asleep until he finishes and she just leaves. She's following him around to do that. (laughs) Uh, um, The time time when um, Axl Rose and uh, Slash and Dave Mustaine were doing heroin in 1989 and Slash was getting really, really, really annoyed with how difficult it was to work with Axl Rose and he briefly considered joining Megadeth for like Fuck, two or three days. That. Yeah. Because um, they started writing like metal riffs when they were both on drugs and, and Slash was like, I could do this for a year. Can you imagine that Megadeth album in like 1989? <laughs> Fucking Some, hell. Some, somewhere between Peace Cells in 1986 and Rust in Peace in 1989. Imagine the Slash playing on like Hangar 18. Fuck. Like, it just defies belief, some of this stuff that took place. And then on top of that, all of this, the normal drink, drugs and sex stories of them getting, like, them inciting riots in, in, in St. Louis. And, and then the massive, the famous tour with Metallica where James Hetfield used to famously call him Axel Pose. And, and, the, and, and the fact that James was on got set on fire and Guns N' Roses still refused to come out on time. And it, it's like all this crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. A band has never had a, a five-year run. For both good and bad reasons, like Guns N' Roses. And this album kicks all that off. And it is an incredibly influential and impactful album that I think rightly sits in this top 20 for influence and social impact alone. We've got another 18 of these to do. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait. Fascinating. I can't wait. I, I can't wait for us to get to this, um, the top 10s and the top fives and, and all this sort of stuff. It's going to be fantastic. So, August Burns, Red Sam, new record, Guardians, out on April 3rd. Um, How long have you been into August Burns, Red? 
That's a great question. I would say I've been into August Burns Red for about seven years. Right. So, this is a ninth studio record. That's not counting the occasional Christmas album they usually throw out there as well. And... <laughs> what? Did you not know? A Christmas album? Yeah, did you not know? December Burns Red. As in, like, literally, like, uh, I can't remember how many they've done now. But they've done a few. I think they did one last year. Like, they'll just release an album of, like, Christmas songs. We fucking covered. noddy hold us. That, that, that they've covered, seriously. I need to check this out. I just listen to, like, the songs that I like on, on like, just, like, Spotify and stuff. I've yeah. got them on a playlist. I don't really... That's yeah, incredible. I'm going to have to the, revisit. Yeah, yeah, they do, like, they do, like, Christmas records and stuff. Um, so, th- before we, we delve straight into this new record, one thing that I want to mention for August Burns Red is that they were around when the quote-unquote modern metalcore was really booming in the late 2000s, but they weren't given anywhere near the same publicity as like uh, Asking Alexandria of Mice and Men or Pierce the Veil, you know where I'm going with this. But actually, yes. I, I think August Burns Red, uh, two of their first records, Messengers and Constellations, are actually better than anything any of those bands have done. I, I, I do like... Of mice and men, are, are quite a lot actually, and I really like Me some too. of their. I do. I really like some of their early stuff, but that one-two punch of records from August Burns Red, Messengers of Constellations, fucking great. Like they really cemented what modern metalcore was, and then there wasn't that they weren't like the band that the media had like picked to be their cover stars. And that that could have been for a variant of reasons, you know. Austin Carlisle from Of Mice and Men, very good looking guy. Vic Fuentes from Pierce the Veil, very good looking guy. But I, I, I just think musically, August Burns Red were quite far ahead of a lot of their contemporaries at the time. And I think that has been proved by the fact that 16 years later, August Burns Red are still a band that. I mean, this this you might not be aware of this. The last two, two of the last uh, three August Burns Red albums have been in the top ten of the Billboard 200. I didn't know that, and I'm so glad that they have success. And they've received Grammy nominations from the yes. last two albums as well. So it's like August Burns Red weren't weren't like the quote unquote chosen ones from the media at the time when modern metalcore was booming. But as it turns out, they have had the absolute most staying power of all those bands. And you listen to what Asking Alexandria are doing now. Man, they ran, <laughs> they, they ran out of steam a long time before August Burns Red even got tired at the wheel. Yeah, so you, think, can I, actually, you can actually hear um, Danny will stop puffing for breath at the end of the, the last couple. So, so I think there is something to be said for, regardless of whether me and you are really into Guardians, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's worth mentioning that August Burns Red have been this band that have really stayed the tide for metalcore. And actually, um, I interviewed Brent, the guitar, one of the guitarists, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying how like they don't really like being called a metalcore band. Like they kind of understand why, but they try to bend away from that, which I think you can actually make out on the last few records that they did try to move themselves specifically away from being called quote unquote metalcore. But regardless, they were in that group that really boomed modern metalcore into fruition in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And they, as it turns out, they've been the best band out of the bunch because they've stayed the course and they've had 
probably the most continued success of Mice and Men and Sleeping with Sirens were were hitting really high on the billboard for a time, but then they just had this massive drop off, this really steep downfall. And that's not to yeah. say that either of those bands are like really struggling now because they're not, but they're nowhere near their absolute peak. Whereas August Burns Red have had this steady incline, and now they're just like comfortably top twenty billboard band, which is incredibly difficult to do. And album sales don't mean anywhere near as much as they did fifteen, twenty years ago. But it's still something to be mentioned, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think it speaks to the idea that musicianship is the anchor that holds a good metal band to its audience, rather than. Um, pop music or sort of like choruses and melody, which tends to be a very flyaway thing and doesn't tend to um, translate from album to album, where if you've got a superb collection of musicians, you can rely on that week in, week out, or year in, year out, or tour in, tour out, whatever the timeline might be. With all that said, Sam, Guardians, what are you thinking? Love this album. Yeah. Yeah, I yours. Am. Yeah, I mean, um, I think... With with August Burns Red, the band a band that have been out for nearly fifteen years, um, I think it'd be churlish now to go in there and say, "Well, what else are they doing? Where else can they go?" Um, and rather just celebrate the fact that it's incredibly rare for a band to be able to still do the same things and do it successfully and not feel stale. And that's what we have here. Um, I think there are four or even five tracks here that are absolutely superb. I think Bones, Paramount, Disembedded Memory, and Bloodletting. And I think it's Defender or Defeater. Defender. Uh, Defender, thank you. Um, are all superb metalcore songs. And a time where the pendulum in music is shifting back towards heavier metalcore and back towards fast-paced music once again among certain metal fans. I think August Burns Red are almost being cast as returning heroes by listening to this album, which is weird because they've sounded the same for a long time and it's really just the, the spotlight's returning back towards them. But I, I think this is marvellous. I don't think this is as accomplished as Polaris's album that we reviewed earlier or as game-changing as the Code Orange album that we're going to review later. Um, but what I do think this is, is it's a very, very, very good album that is easily better than anything I've heard in the last five years from North Lane, for example. Not to just randomly throw shade on North Lane. I actually quite like North Lane. But I'm just pointing out that they're a band who you would say are on the same sort of precipice as August Burns Red, and I think this is 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 better. I think this is um, better than the Last of Mice and Men album as well. Um, I think it retains the dexterity and heaviness that I grew to adore with August Burns Red, and it's listening to the August Burns Red at times feels a bit like if you like Periphery, but not all the time. And you're like As I Lie Dying, but sometimes you wish they were a little bit more complex. They feel like a nice um, halfway house between those two bands and at their, at, the, at their best on this album they they released some absolutely terrific metalcore and some fantastic riffs and tempo changes again and they've maintained the August Burns Red sound which is that sort of echoey reverb heavy sort of lead guitar that lasers in and out of the riffs which gives them that unique sort of feel um, I think if you're looking for criticism, I think if you said to me, Sam, I think it's a bit repetitive. I, I agree. Sam, I think they haven't evolved. I can't argue with that. Um, so I think they need to do something better. I think there needs to be a little bit more um, melody or there isn't enough size in the choruses. I think they leave a bit on the table. I think all those are fair arguments. 
but if you're coming to me and saying I don't think this is a good album, I I couldn't agree, I couldn't agree with that notion because I think this is a very 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 good metalcore album by, by a band that really have been doing this a lot longer and in large part a lot better than than most of their contemporaries. And I'm really glad to hear that this this is a not necessarily a return to form but a continuation of form, which is a reassuring thing for me. This is a really good album and I am in. How about you? I like this. This is a good album. First thing I need to mention is the mixing on this album is a million times better than the, than the previous record, Phantom Anthem. I don't, know whether you, I don't know whether you remember uh, Phantom Anthem, but literally, like the first four songs on that record, the vocalist Jake Lures, you can't fucking hear him. Like it just gets yeah, completely, I do remember that. It gets completely lost in the sound, and it really bothers. Me. It really, really bothered me. Whereas here, this is a good record, but I, I think that. August Burns Red have released, to their credit, they released a lot of material. Like they've released generally an album every two years, which is which has become standard in this day and age, and maybe is just standard in metal in general. But I think that at this point now, there's been <sighs> new Assassin's Creed. Yeah, man, I like where you're going with this. Like. Assassin's Creed used to release a, a, a game every single year, and then the release one called Unity, which was really bad, and people were like, okay, can you just fucking take some time away? Like, just take two or three years to do one, and let us miss Assassin's Creed. And then they did that, they took some, to- they took some time away. Actually, no, it wasn't after Unity. There, there, was, there was an Assassin's Creed, I think it might have been Syndicate, they did one, and then they gave it... Like, yeah, the London they, one. They, yeah, they did, I think it was Syndicate, actually, they did Syndicate, and then they gave it like two or three years until they released another one. And by that point, people had missed Assassin's Creed, and they, were, they, they wanted, they were ready for a new Assassin's Creed game, whereas previously it felt like it was starting to come a little bit cut and paste. And I'm not yeah. claiming that this record is cut and paste because August Burns Red are an incredibly talented band and for the reasons that I mentioned as we started this review, they are the band that stayed the course for modern metalcore. And I think now it could be classed as just metal as a more open letter. But for this, for me personally, I do feel a bit exhausted by August Burns Red music. And a lot of this record was written by the bassist, which supposedly wasn't the plan going in. He just turned up to the studio and was like, oh, lads, by the way, I've written like 60% of the album and they all really liked what had been done and they thought it was like this really tremendous thing that he really come out of his shell and decided to be like a music, like a songwriter. But I think that it does become quite clear that a lot of the album's been written by the same person about six songs in. Because as you, <laughs> as you, as, as you alluded to, there's not a massive amount of variation, which is fine because... It, I wasn't going into... I didn't press play on this record and think, I wonder what August Burns Red are going to do with their sound now. I knew exactly what this would be. And I and I like this album. This is a good metal album. But after about six songs in, I, I was thinking, right, man, yeah, this is... this. You can tell this has been written by one person. You know, like when we reviewed the Beartooth album. We were like, yeah. you, you, you can tell Caleb Shama has written all of this because it sounds the exact same from beginning to end. There's literally, there's there's no uh, variation. And I think this is a much better album, by the way, than that last Beartooth record. Guardians is much better. I can't remember the, I can't remember the name of that last Beartooth record. It was, I don't think it's that bad. I thought it was really, I thought that last Beartooth album was really boring. Bad, bad listeners, a bit of a tune. But listeners, all right, and there's a song at the end, 
clever, I think it is, which yeah. has got which has got a good hook in the chorus. But other than that, I thought that album was whack. Um, what, when I came out of Guardians, I, I felt like instead of coming out with like a list of songs, I could say to you, "Oh, these songs are great." Instead, I was left with like specific moments. There's a breakdown on Defender, which is fucking nasty, and I love it. And there's um, at the end of the album, there's Bloodletter, and it's followed by Extinct, Extinct by Instinct. And which which are my two favourite tracks on the album. And instead of coming out and saying to you like, there's this list of tracks that are really great. On like Bloodletter, there's like a really cool symbol sequence during the breakdown, which I fucking which really caught my ear. And then at the start of Extinct by Instinct, there's this really clean echo guitar that leads into the first screams. And I think that instead of me being able to reel off a list of songs which have defined this record as great. It's just specific moments that I really like within this record. So I think me trying to claim that this record is anything other than good would be me trying to oversell. I like this. This is a good metal album. I have the utmost respect for August Burns Red. But I do feel like we're going to hear the same record in two years, just with different lyrics and arrangements. I think that's a fair call. I think that's a fair call. And I think really... If you, it, it's not going to change anybody's mind. If you're into metalcore, you like always Burns Red, you're going to like this album. If you don't, give it a miss and listen to what you do like, and that's absolutely fine. This isn't going to change the face of what you're into. And I think, I, <coughs> I think metalcore is my favourite brand of metal. Yep, same. And I think I have a greater tolerance for it than most. In the same way that you really like, a, you like a little bit heavier stuff than me, I think. Um, and that's reflected in you've got an increased sense of joy and tolerance for bands that are incredibly heavy, yeah. whereas I can sometimes find them not like repetitive or tedious as such, but I can be a little bit turned off by the consistency sometimes. And I think that that's just where we are, and I think this just cuts down to the heart of who you are as a metal fan, and I mean the, the royal you in this circumstance, you personally. And in this circumstance, it's, if you really like metalcore, you'll find no fault in this album. If you're looking for something else in your metal, you'll you'll be yearned for something else. But in the background, or you're chucking out a place, this is a great album and ticks a lot of the a lot of the great boxes that Organs Burns Red have ticked for a long time. And as you say, we'll probably tick again in two years. Okay, Sam, it's main event time. Here we go. Can I actually mention that when you said, you mentioned earlier, it hasn't changed the game like this new Cold Orange album. I kind of like punched the air. I was like, fucking come on, Sam. Because <laughs> it, 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 like, oh my God, this new Cold Orange album underneath, it's actually already out, but I, I, there's no way that we could do this podcast and not talk about this album. Even if there were six great albums that we had to review this week, I would still have put this in as the seventh album that we had to talk about because I, I just couldn't not include this. Not that this makes a difference to mine and your review, but just for a bit of a general oversight. Code Orange underneath, 10 out of 10 in Metal Hammer, 5 out of 5 in Kerrang, even The Guardian gave it full scores. This, generally, across the board, is being looked at as, oh my fucking God, we cannot believe this album. Code Orange, I remember coming to you and saying, Sam, there's this album called Forever, uh, by this band called Code Orange, which I've discovered because of a, a podcast called That's Not Metal, which was uh, Stephen Hill and Bees. 
I remember the album came out in like January 2017 and they did this album review on it and like they were, they were like astonished. They were like, you have to listen to this album. You will not believe it. And that was at a time where I was really waiting for something new and fresh to come along that I'd never really experienced before. And oh my God, that album just was just a fusion of all these elements of heavy music brought together that made this absolute beast of a record that I loved. And we saw them support Trivium in Birmingham. And I remember, I remember being, I was really caught up in that, and I really loved that album. And when I when I saw that they had this new album coming out, I thought, because Code Orange have been like, they didn't necessarily ask for it, but they've been like lauded as okay. If any band is going to take heavy music forward and possibly break boundaries for it, it's going to be these guys, Code Orange. They did that EP where Corey Taylor was on a song called The Hunt, absolute banger. They did the theme song for Bray Wyatt, um, WWE, which man WWE. WWE fucking hate paying bands to do theme songs. They cannot stand it. They, Vincent Mann hates paying money where it doesn't need to be done. But Code Orange now is Bray Wyatt's theme song, which, again, that just speaks volumes for what this band have achieved. Sometimes people laugh at Code Orange's imagery because it's very dark and depressing. And I interviewed Jamie for uh, Distorted Sound, and he said that they, they, they know that people laugh at them and that doesn't bother them at all. So this album's coming, and I'm thinking, fuck, man, like, these guys have been lauded as the band that could take heavy metal and just metal, heavy alternative music in general forward, and they have got an absolutely monstrous task to beat forever. And I think Underneath is just the most genius, brilliant thing I have heard in fucking years. I am absolutely, like, beyond in love with this. I, I, this review could take a while with me just going on. I think that, like, what, the last hardcore band to break through into metal was probably, like, Hatebreed. And they never got absolutely massive, but they, if you put a gun to my head, they're probably the first band I'd think of that were, like, a hardcore yeah. band that, yeah. metal, that metal fans liked as well. And I think that Cold Orange are the best bet since then to do it again and perhaps be bigger. Just an example of how far ahead of the game Cold Orange think. They were meant to do their album launch show in Pittsburgh, where they're from, sold out. Obviously, because of coronavirus, that was cancelled. They decided to stream the entire show with, as, as an empty venue. Now, a few bands have started to say they're going to do this, but I didn't see anyone mention it before Code Orange did. Now, I'm not saying that they, no one had mentioned it before Code Orange. Maybe there was a band that did it, but I certainly didn't see it. And if you, if anyone listens to this has got 55 minutes spare and they're into this album, watch that fucking live show. It is absolutely amazing. There's not a single person in the venue apart from the five band members, and it's fucking brilliant. It's so, so good. There's a level of intensity captured, which I just cannot believe, considering there wasn't a single person in attendance. It's fucking great. And when, when, we, when it comes to Underneath as an album, I think that there was so much weight of expectancy from me on this. I, I was really begging that this was massive, and I don't think I've ever responded to an album on my first listen like I did to this. Like I got the album early because I reviewed it. A massive shout out to Distorted Sound for that. And I pressed play, and I was listening to it, and I was I was sitting at my laptop, and I was so like I couldn't sit still. I was like twitching. I was that excited listening to it, fucking banging my head, smiling, fucking grimacing at some of the darkness, horrible lyrics and guttural screams from Jamie Morgan that you'd hear. And but 
this is so much more than like a heavy metal album, which I'm sure we're going to get into. This is unquantifiable. How could we even attempt to box this into a particular sound? And I'm going to pass over to you in a second. But I think the first four songs on this album is the most brutal start to a record I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, the the intro song where the child's whispering, let's take a good look at you. Like, I think I mentioned this in my review that I've written. That's like, that, like, elicits uh, things for me, listening to the intro track from the first Slipknot album. The whole thing, I think it's sick. Just, it's really unnerving, made me feel really uncomfortable. And then fucking swallowing the rabbit hole comes in with that, the, I, I can't even explain that the, the, the tune those guitars down. Um, I'm going to take a break for a second before I come back in. Sam, talk to me about Underneath, man. What are you thinking? It's a landmark release. It's a genre and probably decade-defining album. Oh, boy. Go on, Sam. And it's the closest thing I've ever heard since Iowa era Slipknot. I am so happy. Um... (laughs) I am so happy, Sam. Oh, bless you. Um, So... You can split this album into three parts. Um, the first four appears to be Code Orange trying to be, or attempting, or no, actually no, that's it's, it's disrespectful. Code Orange obviously embodying the spirit of like Sepultura, nineteen ninety four era Machine Head, yeah, and ninety nine era Slipknot in the combinations, and it doesn't feel disingenuous. It doesn't feel like a cover act. Um, this band are genuinely sound really malevolent and dark. The experiments they do with sort of the tempo and some of the sounds that they're choosing and the way that they've deliberately made the drum sound as harsh and as abrasive as it is, to the point where it, at times it's almost disconcerting to listen to. Yeah, it's uncomfortable listening, this is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in no way does it make it less engaging. Um, the um, You and You Alone, the, the, double oh. ride, the double ride at the start of that where it's like... Um, in between the riffs I've never heard anything like that and I've heard a lot of drums um, it's just extraordinary it, the, the, com- the combination of the darkness of the riffs and the heaviness of the tempo changes and the shifts and the, the random bouts of silence it's a, it's a chaotic listen uh, and it's metal at its peak at its most furious at its most um, most violent uh, and 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 lacks any sort of mechanical um, polish, and instead is is just a reminder of the beaten brawn and veins um, that that are behind some of metal's best and most uh, impactful releases. After that, it gets to a very different sort of vibe, almost without any transition at all. Um, Who I am is like a, a light new metal, early sort of grungy type song that you could have heard on Soundgarden or even a Deftones album but it's it's not horrible to listen to so shout for Code Orange for making me think Deftones aren't shit for about four minutes um Cold Metal Place the riff at the start of that it's if you told me Rob Flynn about that riff I'd have been like yeah that makes sense it's got that mid uh, era machine head vibe you know um like Tent on Hammer yeah that sort of vibe um, and I'm fucking delighted about that. It's like there's like late 80 Sepultura vibes here. Um, and then and then I'm like, OK, this album's going to kick my head in for 14 songs. Cool. And Sulfur Surrounding comes on. 
and um, it's now less dark. It's now less miserable. It's now less uh, empty and melancholy, um, but it's beautiful and ethereal, um, just as much as the other songs were violent and and frenetic. And to be able to combine that, and 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 it took me a took me a couple of times to hear it to really appreciate it for what it was. I thought it, for a first of all, I was like, okay, this is the token single. Um, sort of getting like lighter listeners and stuff. But the more I heard it, the more I really enjoyed it. And and it, the, the more that I realised that it, the the vibe still, the darkness still permeates through this song. It's just been translated in a different sort of way. And then, and then after that, like it, it feels <laughs> like a it feels like a weird like comp- compilation album of other genres of metal almost simultaneously it seems like this band are so talented that they could impersonate like a chameleon can do a version of it like the easy way sounds like nine inch nails at the start or fear factory like with that electronica and um, with the riff kicking in and just to combine all of these sounds together i, I think is an, it, just a, a a mind-boggling achievement i i went in thinking that i would enjoy this album but I'd be the one talking you off the ledge, um, saying things like good but not great, um, saying things like um, excellent but not historic, saying things like talented but not groundbreaking. And I'm finding myself on the third or fourth listen, trying to talk myself out of saying those things um, because the temptation to, to, to crown it is, is, is humongous. Um what I, what I will say is that I haven't heard an album that has the musical variety and bravery and boldness and ambition of this album um, for a very, very long time. And I use the Slipknot comparison because it does feel like these guys are the next generation Slipknot in terms of the, the sound. I don't mean to say that they're going to inspire a cultural revolution and scare the shit out of people the way that Slipknot did in 1991. If you're listening to that and saying and thinking that that's what I'm saying, then that, that's that's incorrect. But in terms of the pure sound and the level of discomfort that they're putting listeners to at times um, in this album is reminiscent of one of metal's most incredibly disconcerting listening experiences. And the fact that these sound like a nod to and a tribute to some of these out bands and albums, but in a way that doesn't feel like a ripoff at all, genuinely feels like a step forward for metal. And a new iteration of what you can do with riff and what you can do with tempo and what you can do with a studio. The band seemed to have stumbled across or deliberately stepped toward the next movement in terms of how you can manipulate a studio sound and manipulate a riff and manipulate your listener and take them on a journey. And the way that this meshes with some of the vibe changes and genre changes, the fact that, like you said, you can't you can't nail this down. This feels like you're listening to a shadow in the sense that it's it's dark, but you can't grab it. You can't hold on to it. You can't tie it down. Um, but at the same time, it has a ferocity and viciousness that accompanies only the hardest and heaviest of music. And to, to combine those two things and to be able to elicit an emotional reactions and elicit feelings of darkness and emptiness from the listener as well um, means to say that I think this is a exceptional album, a truly exceptional album. 
and one that is reminiscent of the bravery and ambition that coloured the last Tool album, for example, in terms of sort of musical um, variety. It's a different, it's a different translation of metal. It's a different, it's a different exponent of, of, of like sort of people's abilities and stuff. And Tool five or fifteen minute songs, whereas Cold Orange have done fourteen tunes that are four minutes each. But the the ambition. Is, and uh, the malevolence is, and, and all this sort of stuff is still as, as consistent. Um, my only my only qualm is is that I think it's a touch. I think you could take two songs out, and it might feel a little bit more condensed. I'm not as big a fan as Ultimate Carbon and Back Inside the Glass, personally. And I think 14 does maybe near the end. Um, starts to ease away a little bit in terms of the intensity but that is only a very small criticism on what is a superb album and i am incredibly incredibly impressed at the variety and ability that this band have got and the future for them and the future for metal as a result of this album could honestly be boundless you mentioned bravery a couple of times there which i absolutely love because this album is openly obtuse a lot of the time, yeah. This, this isn't an e- this isn't easy listening. You, you, this isn't the kind of album where you could just chuck on in the background and just go about your day. No. There's track the tracks like In Fear, where all of a sudden Reba, the guitarist Reba Myers, she'll just t- chime in with like really unnerving vocals underneath. It's just so sick. And during that song, <clears throat> it's got my favourite moment on the album. You'll probably know what I'm on about. <clears throat> There's a breakdown, there's a big scream, and then out of nowhere, the tempo completely changes into a hard rock song. Mm-hmm. It goes into hard rock for about 10 seconds, and it breaks back down into metal, and it's just like, what the fuck? Like, this is like hopscotch fucking metal, this won't stand still. Like, this is so unbelievably unpredictable. Our friend Kelsall, he's like, he's like, I don't hear anything that I can't predict anymore. He does no fucking way he could predict this album. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, he was talking about how predictable the last Kills Gage album was, which he was he was correct. <laughs> but like with this, like even for someone like him who's like who's like a proper like music tech freak, uh, th- yeah. like this album is just absolutely un like unbelievably unpredictable. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> as In Fear closes off. It drops into that massive drum fill that you were mentioning for you and you alone, with that bloke mm-hmm. occasionally whispering in the background as it stops for a second. Yeah, it's just just really like ahead of the game, unusual, amazing stuff. I've never heard an album produced like this in my entire life. This is this was produced mostly by them, the band, and a guy called Will Yip, um, and the, the 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 level of individuality in this album. It's just astonishing. And I think you alluded to it as well. I think probably the most brilliant thing about this album is how it spends most of its time most of its time being so brutally heavy. And then you've got that one-two punch of sulfur surrounding and the easy way, which are like alternative rock ballads, theoretically. Yeah. And I, you know, you could say like the chorus on the easy way, which is probably my favourite song on the album. I reckon you could have probably chucked that chorus somewhere on The Colour and the Shape by Foo Fighters. Not the whole song, but just that chorus. It's massive, I understand. I understand. It's a massive It's a massive rock chorus in the middle of this album that is 
wholeheartedly one of the heaviest experiences you will have in music. And they fucking chuck these alternative rock ballads in out of nowhere. It's just this really intelligent, fascinating, brave, genre, boundary, fucking smashing way of putting this album together. The breakdown on Cold Metal Place with the pinch harmonics below the screams. Not necessarily creating a new ceiling. But the way it's been performed and the darkness of Jamie Morgan, who on this album is amazing, by the way. He's mm-hmm. the drummer and the vocalist. Um, although now it looks like he's just moved straight to vocals and they've got like a session drummer. But uh, before that, he was the drummer and vocalist. He's unbelievable on this album. Just incredible. And I couldn't, you know, you get to like erase your scan. I couldn't even tell you really what's going on, but it's all so furious. It's balanced just so brilliantly that it never feels like obligatory heavy. No, this this no, is it a re- This is a record that has just been put together inch by inch, and for me, is just perfect. I am so so in love with this. I think that in a world where we just spoke about. Bands like August Burns Red, which have this blueprint formula, which is absolutely fine, and they're really good at it, and they stick to it. But there's there's this like crying out, like beckoning call that someone needs to come along and change the game and just open these doors. Holy shit, this is it. This is the album. Like Forever was a really great, intelligent fusion of styles. This this goes beyond fusion of styles. This this is a whole new style. And, and I think that this album could just see generations of bands to come for me. I, I, I think I posted on Facebook when I was talking about it that I think Code Orange would probably be one of the biggest heavy bands in the world in five years. That might not be the case. And because, you know, thinking, think, really thinking about that statement, this album is very obtuse. And the, whether this album, I really want it to. Because I just think they they absolutely deserve it, and they're probably, in my opinion, like the best young band in the world at the moment. But whether this would translate to a massive audience is quite a question. Because there's no set audience that you could recommend for this album, is there? They have to take pieces from each audience. They have to take a bit of Slipknot's audience, a bit of Nine Inch Nails audience, a bit of Sepultura's audience, a bit of Earth Crisis audience. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's just a, it's just a, it's a healthy blend and cocktail of metal's darkest and best moments at times. This is. But with doing that, there's no absolute guaranteed audience that will catch on. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like how you know, like with Corn, like when Limp Bizkit came along, you'd be like, hey, if you like Corn, you'd like this band. Do you know? What but you can't do that. Yeah. With Cold you can't do that. Yeah, you have to be like, if you hate yourself, you'll love this album. <laughs> you can't. You can't pick a band and say. Oh, um, you love Slipknot. You'd love Code Orange because Code Orange don't send anything like Slipknot. They send a little bit like Slipknot, but there's no absolute like marriage that you can make there. There might be a band out there somewhere that you could be like, oh, if you like this band, you will definitely like Code Orange. But I certainly can't think of one for the time being. But that's also what I love so much about this. This is so individualistic. Have you ever heard anything like this, Sam, in your entire life? Not, not, not from a metal band. Absolutely not. Um, in fact, not like anything. Uh, no. A short answer. We're at this point where <clears throat> I think that this album 
is going to be looked at back at with forever as two major, major timestamps in alternative music. And I think that in twenty in twenty five years, the next massive superstar million selling metal slash rock band that are doing something really unique. In twenty twenty five years, they're going to be being interviewed, and someone's going to say to them. Oh, so who influenced you? Because this is really new and unique. Da, 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 da. And they're going to say, there was this band from Pittsburgh called Code Orange and they had these two albums called Forever and Underneath and they absolutely influenced me. It was nothing like I've ever heard before and then it gave me ideas to try and see of what I could do from there. Because it's the claim that I think this that Code Orange might go on to be a multi-million selling band, I don't think so because they're too obtuse. But I think they're going to be one of those bands that people look back at and be like, yeah, I heard this album when I was like 13 years old or 20 years old and it completely changed my life in terms of music. It showed me ways that you could write and put pieces of genres together that I never even considered. There's no way that me and you could just sit and dissect the entirety of this album without people fucking wishing that we'd just shut the fuck up. But all I'll say is this is my favourite album of recent memory. And we've reviewed some absolute fucking bangers over the over this last year of doing the podcast. And I've heard, me and you, since we've been listening to music together as two best friends, are just a cacophony of absolute brilliant, great albums. This is my favourite album of, of recent memory. I cannot speak highly enough about this. I am fucking in love. And I'm so happy that you're into it as well. Holy shit, dude. I don't know what I would have done if you'd have said, oh, it's all right, innit? <laughs> I, was mate, tempted, I, I was tempted to start, start like that to see how you'd have responded. Mate, and for the f- I've never done this before, ever. Right, but for the first time I thought, I wonder what Metacritic says about this album. So I went on, I went on, I went on Metacritic about this album. <laughs> Sam, Sam, can I, re- can I read you one of the reviews? Oh, right. no. It's, it's, it's only a paragraph. It's only a paragraph. Okay, of course. This is from someone who rated it 3 out of 10, so I already think he's an absolute prick. Um, (laughs) this, This is it, this is it. This stuff sounds like any other rock band in the last 20 years. What? What the fuck? Name them. Yeah, it's like, if it, if it does, can you give them me all, please? Because I'd, I'd love to hear them all, because this is fucking brilliant. Please, guys, can Rock forget the ugly Linkin Park flirt? I hate this band, and I will hate anything that is mimicking them. This is where it gets really good. If only it was Electric Wizard or Queens of the Stone Age that influenced the next rock era. Oh, fuck nah, off. Nah, it had to be Linkin. Well, in a world where Ariana and Taylor are icons, what would you expect? I'm not going to name the person that wrote this. I'm not going to give him the fucking privilege. But I you must be his address, though. <laughs> I hate this man. I hate how, him. How has he, how has he managed to link this album to somehow Ariana Grande and Taylor Swift? I hate this man, Sam. <laughs> I, wish, I wish the greatest of ills upon him. A plague on both your houses. <laughs> Mate, what an arsehole. Uh, but, you know, just... The reason why I chose to read that out is because, obviously, like most great, great albums that can be looked back at, this is going to be quite divisive. Uh, Our best friend Leon, I don't think Leon would get this. Do you know what I I mean? I think he'd like bits of it. Oh, um, yeah, like... The breakdown bits, the breakdown bits, and the first, the first, the first four songs on the record, I reckon it'd be all about. But in terms of like as a whole piece of art, I don't think he'd quite get it. And that's absolutely fine because great art is divisive. 
Yes. For for me, favorite album of recent memory, man. What a fucking piece of art. Yeah, I I I agree. That I think it's I think it's an incredible incredible album. And what happens is that people don't like it at first, and then years of people like me and you shouting about how great it is eventually convinces people to give it another go, and then it'll enjoy like a second wave, and things like that will happen. Um, but yeah, I think this is um, as impactful and terrific and well written an album as we have heard for a considerable length of time. And once again. 2020, even despite the circumstances, is shaping up to be quite an album, uh, quite a year for albums. Mate, Polaris and Code Orange going to be right up there when we do our end of the year list, I tell you. Yeah, that, that, so far they're firmly entrenched <laughs> in that top five. And we've still got fucking, what, eight months to go? Crazy, man. Yeah, it really is, mate. What an episode of Noise Podcast it has been, but sadly we're going to have to leave it there. We will be back in two weeks, though. We are going to be reviewing the new EP from Malevolence. And I... (laughs) And I... Now, the problem with another thing this fucking virus is doing to us um, is a lot of our bands are delaying their record releases. So it could end up being quite difficult for us to be finding new records coming out to review on the show, or we'll do my best to find ones that are in and around the, the popularity area. But two weeks' time, definitely doing the new Malevolence EP, and we might do the new Black Dahlia Murder album. We'll see if we can. Uh, we'll see if anything else comes to comes to light that we decide to review. Thanks so much for everyone listening to this episode. I hope me fucking shouting in your face about Code Orange being the best thing in existence hasn't bored you too much. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. We love you. Bye.